rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me, and I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we engage this morning with uh, your word, we pray that you will give us insight and understanding on who you are and the kind of relationship that you're calling us into with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our uh, journey through this letter to the church in Colossae, and uh, Jeremiah has done a good job getting us started. Where's Jeremiah? There, getting us started for the last uh, couple of weeks, taking us through uh, Colossians chapter 1 and Col- Colossians chapter 2, and we'll continue for a couple more weeks. And you can, by the way, get caught up with all of the teachings in this, Jeremiah's last two messages at adventhope.org, and uh, we hope that you'll take advantage of that so you can uh, find out what we've talked about before getting here. Now, uh, Paul is writing, as Jeremiah articulated earlier, to this uh, town, uh, Colossae. And he's a prisoner in Rome, and so he's writing now to some of the, the churches that have sprouted up after his, his teaching and that have gone out into, into the land and into Greece in particular. And so he's writing, in this case, about some theological errors in the church, wanting to encourage and make some uh, corrections. And uh, he says that he wants to bring the fullness of uh, God to this, this community. Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, the mystery that uh, Paul is talking about here relates back to Genesis chapter 3, 15, that first place in the entire Bible story that God gives hope for the broken world. Genesis 3.15, the first inkling of the good news. You may remember this story if you've ever read back in Genesis. Adam and Eve, they choose to go on their own way. The relationship between them and God and them and each other is broken and things get pretty desperate pretty quick. But God comes. He doesn't give up on them. And so he, 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 he gives them this mysterious promise that there is going to be one that comes from God to reconcile things, to make things right, to, to fix the brokenness. It's going to come at the future. Uh, it's going to come at an unknown time, but there is going to be one 
to come. And so this was a mystery. It's a mysterious figure. It's a very, almost like a, a dropped line that you can miss it if you're reading through Genesis and not quite stop to even catch what's going on. But this is the great promise that God has a plan to make things right, to fix the brokenness. And so this mystery uh, continued for years, for, for thousands of years, in fact. And so if you, as you continue to read through the Old Testament, you'll find other inklings of, of, of news about this one who is supposed to come, who's going to be injured and hurt, but is ultimately going to overcome the evil one, is going to make things right. And so in books like Daniel and, 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 and Ezekiel, you get, get these inklings of there's this mysterious one who is going to uh, come. The identity, though, was a mystery. Now, as it turns out, as it turns out, this a rescuer was God himself. God makes himself into a human and comes into the world and does his rescuing work. And so this was somewhat shocking news that it was God himself who was going to come down and make things all right. But the, this was not the only stunning news of this uh, mystery. Uh, the real stunning news for many of the first uh, hearers of this news was not just that this itinerant preacher from some backwater town in the Roman province of Judea was God himself. I mean, that was shocking enough, but that wasn't the, the, the extent of the, of, of the stunning nature of this mystery. What was really stunning was that God had come to rescue everyone that it wasn't just a special group of people that were going to be able to take advantage of this work that God was doing, that the Messiah, the Christ, the one that the Bible had talked about for so long wasn't just coming for the special group, that this person was coming, that God was coming for everyone, that Christ's work was comprehensive. It wasn't just for the the special. It wasn't just for a particular religious group. It was for everyone. Now, Paul keeps in, in, in Colossians here, keeps using this metaphor of wealth, uh, that God is so wealthy that he has uh, riches that are just overflowing. The idea is that you, you go into his, his, his house and every room is just filled of, with riches and there's so much, and he has so much to give away that he doesn't just give it away to his kids and his family, but he has abundance of wealth for everybody, for everybody. Everybody gets to take advantage of this wealth. It reminds me of uh, Robert Smith. You may remember back in May while he was uh, finishing his commencement speech at Morehouse uh, University, he uh, announced to the graduates that all of their college debt was going to be forgiven, that he was going to pay for their college uh, debt. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't, wouldn't you, and who, who here is still paying college debt? You know how long I've been out of college? I know, if somebody still paying that debt, I'm glad to see I'm not alone. There are others. Smith said, all of you, I mean, what a, what a, what a, I mean, it's already exciting. You're graduating from college. All of your debt, $90,000, $100,000 worth of debt, wiped away in a second. $40 million it costs. Now he's worth like $5.6 billion. So I, you know, but still, wow, what, what a, what a thing. He has riches. See, he has riches and he has decided that he's going to use his riches to benefit other people. This is, the, this is the picture, though, of God, that God has so many riches, so much at, at his disposal that he's going to give to everyone, not just to the, those who identify themselves as his family. Everybody gets to take advantage of this. And so Paul keeps using this, uh, this metaphor of glorious, glorious riches. Now, while this idea of God 
a coming. The coming man, coming with riches for everyone, seems like universally uh, good news. The reality is that there were uh, those that were less than happy about this idea of everybody getting to take advantage of God's work in uh, Jesus, particularly those who felt like they had had a special relationship with God, those people who felt like all along they were like kind of extra special in, in close connection with God, the idea that suddenly everyone was now included in this, in this work that God was doing was a little, little bit discouraging. And so we see this in Jesus' engagement with the religious leaders of uh, his day, leaders who were obsessed with the uniqueness of their own religious order and their own ethnic identity. It made them very uncomfortable that now everybody was included. Everybody, in a sense, was special. That was a little bit disturbing. Now, I would go further, though, and suggest that uh, while this seems odd, the reality is that this is not a phenomenon that is just relegated to the first century religious leaders of Jesus' day. This idea of wanting to be special, of wanting to be a part of an exclusive uh, group, is something that has been a problem for humans since almost day one. And probably, if we're honest about our own hearts, that we have a, a little desire to be exclusive or, or special ourselves. That, that temptation, just feel like, you know, we've got a little bit more figured out than someone else, or we're a little bit better than someone else, and so we're in a select group, if you will. We're, we're VIPs in, in some way. We have this identity issue, and we, we want to be special. We want to be seen as exclusive. And so if we're honest, if we're honest, we're not that much different than those religious leaders of the first century. We want to we wanna be seen as being in an exclusive group, as being uh, special. I think religious people have a particular challenge with this. You know, maybe, maybe Christians, a particular challenge. Maybe Adventists, that we want to feel like we're special. We have special things. We do this, you don't do this. We do this, you don't do this. We eat this, you don't do this. We don't eat this, you don't do this. Special, exclusive. Something that, 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 that excites us about that. But Paul is like, God has such riches that it covers everyone. Everyone is invited into this work that he is doing. And so this leaves us with the question, uh, what is it about human nature that um, makes us desire exclusivity and makes us exclusionary toward other people? Why, why is this? What, what is uh, uh, creating this desire in, in our hearts to be special, to be uh, exclusive? I think there are a number of responses to this. I have a couple to share with you today. Some of them may be more benign than others. Uh, firstly, I think we get excited about being in exclusive groups or excluding other people because we have preferences toward certain things. I mean, you know, there are things that we like that other people don't like, and that leads us to exclude other people. They're, 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 you know, we just have preferences, and we're like, you know, I'm going to congregate with the people who do the same things that I do. And we become maybe even subconsciously exclus exclusionary. So we hang out with all the same people. We listen to all the, the same arguments. You know, I mean, this is a huge problem on social media where you, you, you live in the bubble. You know, we're talking about the problem of the bubble. You only hear people who, who you agree with. And, 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 and this creates all kinds of challenges, and this is, this is exclusionary. 
we, we, we gravitate toward those who are like us. And so this could be benign. It could not be benign, but oftentimes it's not something we necessarily think about, and so we have to think about that. We exclude because we have preferences. And this is part of this desire, again, consciously or subconsciously, to be uh, exclusive. Uh, secondly, we exclude because we fear a scarcity. Right? You exclude because you fear, feel scarcity. There is only so much of this in the world, and, and uh, there's just not enough for everybody. And so I have to, we have to be exclusive. We can only let these people in. We, can, uh, we, we can't give it out to everybody, or there's just not enough. So scarcity is, this happens certainly in, in world economics, even in spirituality. We can't, we can't let everybody in. If everybody is in, then, then we're not going to have enough. Of course, this is literally the opposite message of the one who has great wealth, who has enough for everybody. There is no, there is no scarcity. I mean, even in some practical things, this, this, this scarcity model is, is somewhat in question. Did you know this? I was reading this, uh, this article in The Atlantic. Americans waste 50% of all the produce that is produced in the United States. So farmers are out working hard, they're making produce, 50% of that is wasted. Some of that is wasted when it comes to your table and you, you throw it away because you don't like what you're eating. But most of it is just literally shipped from farms into the, into the waste bin, into the, into the landfills. In fact, the EPA has, has uh, assessed that 60% of what is in our landfills is food waste. So a lot of that is just produce that's literally like we have too many of this, by the way, you know, people will not buy ugly fruit. You know this? There's a company you see in the subway, they're trying to like sell you ugly fruit because, I mean, most of the fruit that is produced is ugly and the, the, the uh, grocery store's like, we can't, nobody's going to buy a tomato with an extra little arm jutting off of that. Would you buy that? You should buy that. Go buy that. Come on. So all that ugly fruit, where does it go into the, into the landfill? Scarcity. There's not enough food. There's plenty of food. 50% of what we produce is in landfills. How about land? Scarcity, not enough land, not enough places uh, for us to live. If everyone, this is uh, another article, if everyone lived as densely as we do here in Manhattan, the entire human population could live in New Zealand, the, tiny, the island country of New Zealand. Everybody lives like they do in Manhattan, like we do here in Manhattan. How many of you live in Manhattan? Some of you, okay. Everybody, come live like we do in Manhattan. We can all take over New Zealand. Okay, I know what some of you are thinking. I don't want to live in Manhattan. I don't want to live in, in, a, in, a, in a, a tall building, right? I know some of you want a backyard. Some of you have a backyard. Okay, so how about this? If everyone lived as densely as people do in New Jersey, New Jersey, we could all, the whole human population could live in Russia. We could all live inside the boundaries of Russia. We just have to live at like they do in New Jersey. Anybody here from New Jersey? Because yeah, you guys think, Mike, Ong, you guys have, you have a yard, right? You can have a yard. We're all moving to Russia. <laughs> we fear scarcity. We fear, we were afraid that we're, there's not enough in the world, and so we have to protect ourselves, or there's, 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 not, a, there's not enough of God things to go around, and so we, gotta, we can't let everybody in. If we let everybody in, there's not going to be enough for anybody. That's, it's, it doesn't work. It's not how it works. And so we're exclusive because we fear uh, scarcity. 
And uh, finally, we are exclusive. We exclude because doing so makes us feel better about ourselves. You know, there's something really, really uh, inside of us that ma makes us feel good when we are special. Uh, when, our, our, uh, when we are identified as being unique in a particular way, we feel uh, privileged. I mean, have you ever, have you never been in a VIP section? This has been my favorite. Have you ever been in a, like a VIP section of whatever, and then they realize that you shouldn't be there, that you're not actually the person they thought you were? That's happened to me. Here, come sit over here at this table. Oh, oh so, I'm sorry. That wasn't you. Let's go. That, that feels, that's, that's like the word. No, I'm sorry. You get kicked out of the VIP area. That happens to me all the time. They kick me out of the VIP area. Um, but we like to be in the VIP area. You're the very important person. You're, you're in the exclusive club. You are, you are special. I mean, we love that. We love that. It makes us feel better. Our, you know, our identity is rooted in how we are related to other people. And if we're related to other people in a special way, like you're, you're a little bit lesser than me. I'm in this special group. Again, this may be happening uh, subconsciously, but that just makes us feel really good. You guys know what I'm talking about here? So we exclude because it makes us feel better to be an exclusive club. Again, this happened. I hate to say this, but this is a part of, of the church life too, right? Church is excluding. We can't let that person in. We can't let this uh, uh, person in because what is that going to mean for us? We want to be special. We want to be special. So this is a real problem. Here's God who is presented as the one with unlimited wealth, who's offering that wealth for everyone. It's available to everyone. And yet here we have in our, our human nature this desire to be in the special club and to be seen as being exclusive and that helps our, our identity as we compare ourselves to other people. But, but this is a dichotomy that just doesn't work. The God who's inviting everyone and yet our human nature who wants to exclude, wants to keep out it's to build barriers. It's, 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 it doesn't work. So how do we overcome this love for exclusivity and learn to live in God's abundance that invites everyone in? Uh, well, the good news, I think this comes back to the mystery of Genesis chapter 3, 15 and the mystery that Paul is talking about in this letter to the church in Colossae that Jesus was himself, first of all, not exclusive. That Jesus uh, broke down barriers. He engaged with people that other people would not engage with. In and, and John chapter 4, we have a great story of Jesus uh, talking to a, a woman while his colleagues are around that nobody else in the group would talk to. Because Jesus was, was, was not exclusive. He was inclusive. Now, I mean, if there is anyone to be exclusive, it would be Jesus, right? I mean, he was in the most exclusive club in the universe, the Godhead. Nobody else is getting in that, that club. I mean, you don't get in a more exclusive group than that. And so Jesus was exclusive, but he invites people in and is inclusive. Jesus wasn't exclusive. In John chapter 13, Jesus himself says that his work is for, quote, everyone. Everyone. Nobody is excluded. In, in Luke chapter 7, again, Jesus engages a, a, a Roman soldier, someone that his, 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 his group, his, 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 
his, his tribe, if you will, they would not normally include, but here Jesus is again engaging with someone outside of the boundaries which were established by his culture. And so Jesus himself was uh, not exclusive. So what? Well, that's great. Jesus was a great model of inclusivity. He had the, every reason, have every right to be exclusive, but he wasn't. He was inclusive. He invited people in, but th- that's, that's not enough. Jesus just being a great model for us. Jesus' work on our behalf it changed the game when it came to this idea of exclusivity. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is the, a, a parallel letter that Paul wrote. He talks about this issue of exclusivity even more directly. This is uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Wait for this. He says, Therefore remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles, you who are on the outside, you're outside of the exclusive group. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, those who are insiders. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Before Jesus came, the reality is there was an exclusive group and there was a group that was excluded from that group. But now, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. See, something happened. It changed the game for humanity. Something changed because of Jesus' blood. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This is a great, great message. I mean, Paul is speaking to this human problem of exclusivity that there's us and that there's them and we've got to protect our group and our, 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 our clan and our tribe and, 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 and if we're not protecting, you know, who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> Paul says, look, there's, God, what are you doing? There's enough for everybody. Quit being foolish. The door is open for everyone and in fact, when Christ came and died, his blood opened the door for everyone and now everybody is in. There should be peace because we are all united He himself is our peace. He's made the two groups one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. (laughs) Isn't that what we need today, a new humanity? A humanity that doesn't, that doesn't evaluate each other by race or ethnicity or where you were born or what, what political system you happen to grow up in. Everybody is one. This is a new humanity. This is the idea that Paul's asserting that happened when Jesus died. A new humanity is born. Not just new people, not just new individuals, but a new humanity, a new group, people who are united in love. That barriers, that walls are torn down. This is This is Christianity. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Everybody got the same message of peace. It didn't matter which group you were in. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of one household. I'm not making this up, by the way. This is the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago who's addressing the idea of separation and exclusivity and saying it's rubbish. There's no, there's no exclusivity in the kingdom. Everybody is invited in. God has enough for everybody, and everybody should be in. Through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. See, the, 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 the church is designed as a place where everybody, everybody is included. And the foundation of that community is on the cornerstone of Jesus. That Because of his blood, this is possible. Before there was exclusion, before things were operating as, 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 as the, the, in, in regards to the, the evil nature of this world, and there was exclusion in that. But when Jesus came, it changed everything, and now everyone can be one. No more separation. No more exclusivity based on the things that we think are important. In God's eyes, what makes a person special isn't their ethnicity or the place that they were born or, again, what political system they happen to grow up in. What makes a person special is whether they are willing to embrace God's work on their behalf. And if you embrace God's work on your behalf, which is open to everyone, you are in. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the wealthy guy who's got all the money in the world and is inviting for your debt to be paid. Hey, college students, I mean, I can't imagine that any of those college students at Morehouse thought for a moment and said, you know, I, I just, I don't think I'm going to take that. I'm not going to take that, that, uh, that, that debt abolishment. It's the same invitation. Everybody has opportunity to have their debt abolished, and the only question is, are you going to take it? Are you going to embrace God's work on your behalf? And if that happens, then God is making a new humanity. A new humanity. It's not like the old humanity that had an exclusion based on all of these parameters. In this new humanity, everybody is together. Everybody is one. We're all in the same boat. And our identity is rooted not in our own specialness, but in the specialness of the one who has come and done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. See, connection something outside of ourselves. Uh, look how this group of people is described in the very last book of the Bible. This is the revelation of Jesus, the final book of, of the Bible. And this is John, one of Jesus' disciples. And he's now an old man, and he's looking at the visions of things to come. And he sees this picture of the community of, of faith, at the end when Jesus comes. And he says this. He says, I looked, and there before me was this great multitude that no one could count. It was, it was innumerable. And this group of people were from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes, so everybody was equal now. They even had the same clothing on. There was no exclusivity. It was like, oh, that person's got that on, that person's got... No, no, everybody gets like the most basic thing you could possibly wear. Everybody is wearing that. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation, rescue, belongs to God. It doesn't belong to how awesome we are or what a great culture we are or our historical standing in the world. That's, that's, that's irrelevant. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which is a reference directly to the salvific work of Jesus, the one who died on, on our behalf, whose blood changed the game and makes humanity into new humanity. In the end, the only people who are excluded are those people who self-select exclusion, who are not willing to embrace the free gift of debt abolishment. Everybody else is in. Everybody else is in. Paul, in this letter, he, he closes this portion of the letter saying this. I like when somebody states a goal. You know, Paul does that here. He says, my goal is that the church may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of Christ and all of the hidden treasures and wisdom and knowledge that come with that. See, Paul's goal was that people would recognize what God has done, and that they would be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now, I think that this is transformational. The God with the great riches who is inviting everybody in. And what this means for us, what this means for a community like Avon Hope is that everybody is in. Like every single person is in. And so that means that, that our community should be full of various different people from different places and of different colors and of different ethnicities and, and of different backgrounds and experiences and that we're all in. I mean, that's the beauty. And so the, the church should be a statement in a broken world that has a lot of exclusion. The church should be a place where everybody sits shoulder to shoulder with, with, with people from different places and our different colors and from different backgrounds and different uh, histories and that we somehow, by the Spirit, function as one and are united in love. And this is a miracle. This is a miracle. It's a miracle that we can all come together and be one. And yet this is the promise that God wants to do in us as individuals, help us to be abolished to the idea of exclusivity, get rid of that idea. You're not special. You're not special. Get over that. I know in the New York in particular, we want to be special. We've got to be the best to live here. You're not special. That's the message. You're not special. Your specialness doesn't matter. In the end, it's like, you're, you're, I mean, of the scale of specialness, the, the amount of special you might have is like way down here. So maybe you're a little special in this one area. It doesn't matter in the end. What matters is that we're connected with a God who indeed is special and invites us all to be in his kingdom. And so he wants to make a, a community, a group of people who are united in love and yet diverse in every single other way. 
diverse in every single way, but united in love. And so the invitation for us as a community, a little community here in New York City, is to be that kind of body, to let God do in us what only he can do to bring us together, to unite us, to to help us as individuals to get over the idea that we have to be exclusive or that we somehow our specialness is what matters, to get over that idea and to embrace that God's work is for everybody. There's no more walls, no more barriers, everybody in is in, and that we should be a testimony to a broken world. I mean, what the world needs today is a picture of people from all over, from every background, who love and care about each other. Right? The Bible says this. You, 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 hey, well, how are people going to know Christians? How are people going to know who followers of Jesus are? They're going to know by their love for each other. I mean, that's the defining feature of a follower of Jesus. Love for each other. The God of great riches inviting us in to a relationship where everybody is welcome. May we be that kind of community here today. Amen.